Open up your Bibles to uh, Psalm chapter 1. First Psalm. We'll be looking at the first Psalm in God's Psalter. Psalm chapter 1 reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here in America, the pursuit of happiness is a self-evident truth. That means it has no need for explanation. Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote those words, he assumed that the personal longing for happiness will be so basic, so instinctual to all of us, that there are no extant sources that explain why he would choose to pen the pursuit of happiness alongside the words life and liberty. Either it was for rhetorical flourish, or Jefferson was able to wrap his fingers around a concept that is so ingrained in all of us that when we read the words from the Declaration, those line, that line, strongly resonates with all of us. Everyone desires to be happy, or at least feel happy. We all have specific ways in which we find happiness. For some, it is with the people we love. Others, it is the recreation we engage in. And for some, it is more destructive. It can be found at the bottom of the bottle, or the needle, or other substances. We all in some way, shape, or form live our lives according to what will make us happy. We structure our lives in such a way in which we cannot wait for the weekend. We cannot wait for the next vacation. We eagerly anticipate the next get-together. God knows this. In fact, he made people so that they may flourish. He intended life to be filled with abundant joy. And that's the image we get in the garden. Adam walked with God. And yet, that happiness he had was substituted for a subpar happiness. We were tricked into thinking that what God has given us for our happiness and our flourishing is not enough. Ironically enough, in our own pursuit of happiness, we chose to forsake what 
or better to say who made made us truly happy the psalmist understands this that is why in the opening words of the songbook of scripture the psalmist sings about the truly happy man the man who is blessed by god he paints two portraits the righteous and his counterpart the wicked and i believe this was done so intentionally i believe god sovereignly crafted and placed each individual psalm in this book of psalms so that he purposely placed this psalm first and let me explain why the psalms reveal the heart of god and what he values in his people a full rainbow of emotions are conveyed and surveyed here the psalms will lead its readers to the highest of heights of praise and then down to the darkest depths of sorrow. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 give the reader the proper framework for how to approach and how to understand all subsequent psalms. Uh, these two psalms are the lenses of a reader's glasses that will properly focus one's reading and then one's understanding of God's heart. So our first psalm informs us who, to, who the reader must be when he approaches God's book of praise. Because if you think about it, if, if the Psalter is like a gateway into the heart of God, and, and God is holy, he's set apart, he's completely different from us, therefore something must be said about the one who approaches this holy, set apart, different God. Psalm 1 answers that. It states that the truly happy man, in which I titled this sermon, the truly blessed man, is the man who knows God and loves his word. This is the first step one must take when entering the Psalter. Do you know God and do you love his word? The psalmist will argue that by answering these two questions rightly, this is where true happiness is found. This is the pursuit of happiness. The psalmist will present two portraits or paths or ways for us to examine and meditate upon. He'll give us, he'll give us God's opinion concerning these two. And finally, by way of implication, he'll leave us, the reader, to judge what kind of man or woman he or she wants to be. What, do, what kind of man or woman you and I wish to be. Understand that the psalmist is biased and, and he is arguing for his reader to choose the path of the righteous because he knows that it is the righteous, the one who knows God and loves his word, who is truly happy. So our text will break up into three sections, uh, three evaluations, so to speak. First is the evaluation of the righteous in verses 1 through 3. Second is the evaluation of the wicked, verses 4 and 5. And lastly is God's final evaluation of both, in verse 6. So let's look at this first evaluation, the evaluation of the righteous, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it again just to have the text more in our mind. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, 
nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is planted like a tree. He is like a tree, excuse me, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Blessed is the man. This is the declaration. This is the thesis statement of the entire psalm. The psalmist is convinced. He's trying to convince his reader to why the life of the righteous is attractive. Is that this man is blessed. The psalm begins with the declaration blessed or happy. The terms are interchangeable. You find this declaration all over the Old Testament. Psalm 32, 33, 34, 40, 84, 94, 106, 112, 119, 127. We can, we can find more. All of them declaring a state of blessedness or happiness upon a man or a group of people who orders their life, his life in a certain way. Psalm 1 acts as a prelude to all of these statements of blessedness the reader will find in this songbook. To be blessed is to receive certain favor. Christians can confidently say that we have been blessed with the grace of God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible often uses the term blessed as to describe the amount of material wealth a person has. Job has been blessed by God before the events of the book of Job and afterwards. Abraham, the patriarch, was blessed by God. However, the Bible more directly links blessed with who a person relates to God, his created world and God himself. The psalmist is not drawing our attention to blessedness as a result of receiving material possession, per se, or by itself, but rather almost all the references to being blessed in the Psalms refer to one's relationship with God in one form or another. Look at what immediately follows this declaration of blessedness, what this blessed man is not. And this is important for us to understand because this is the first description we find of the blessed man in the Psalms. Immediately after declaring a man to be blessed, the psalmist clarifies by saying he is not these three things. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the path of the sinner. And lastly, he does not sit in the seat of the scoffer. Walk, stand, sit are all verbs that describe a person's lifestyle. So we know that the blessed man does not engage in these activities. The point of these three delineations or descriptions is not so much to provide a comprehensive list of don'ts in one's life, but rather the psalmist is emphasizing a certain lifestyle the blessed man has, or better yet to say, does not have. He begins with the emphatic, he does not walk, or literally, no, he walks. The Bible uses the metaphor of walking in reference to living one's day-to-day -day life, the day-to-day -day activities uh, to the general trajectory of one's life from childhood to adulthood are all characterized by one's walk. Walking is a helpful picture for life. 
Because when you're walking, at the moment, it seems like you're moving slowly. That there's so much road ahead of you that your destination seems far away. But as the walk progresses, you look back and you survey the path you tread and you notice that you've come a long way. You extrapolate that into our lives, especially as a young person. It seems like there's so much ahead of you. Uh, but if you've even lived some time now, you can look back and see you've come a long way. That's the nature of walking. The same goes for who do you stand with or who do you associate yourself with. Standing in the way of sinners has connotations of the lifestyle you live. Where do you place your, take your stand, so to speak? Lastly, sitting in the seat of scoffers refers to that immovable, immobile posture in which, coupled with the word scoffer, how you view the Lord. How do you view God? This is the first picture of the righteous man the psalmist is painting here. Because as you walk, uh, as you decide where you want to stand, and as you decide when, where you want to sit, you'll encounter various paths in which you can choose to walk on. You'll be faced with choices in which you'll either stand with the righteous and the godly, or you'll scoff with those who carry sinful lifestyles. C.S. Lewis titles this particular theme within the Psalms as connivance, which is derived from a more familiar term, conniving, meaning worshipers of Yahweh are to outright reject any kind of worldview that rejects Yahweh. The psalmists are very good in separating themselves from tossing one's lot in with the wicked, so to speak. Uh, the saying goes, bad company ruins good morals. But I think the psalms understand that isn't we, we have to separate ourselves from wicked people because we, don't, we do not wish to pollute ourselves with them, but rather... We are no better than them. It isn't so much bad company ruins good morals, but rather bad company propagates bad morals that are there to begin with. And I think Lewis is incredibly helpful here. Listen to what he says. I am inclined to think a Christian would be wise to avoid where he decently can any meeting with people who are bullies, levitious, cruel, dishonest, spiteful, and so forth. Not because we are too good for them. In a sense, because we are not good enough. We are not good enough to cope with all the temptations, nor clever enough to cope with all the problems which an evening spent in such society produces. The temptation is, the temptation is to condone to connive at, by our words, our looks, and laughter. The temptation is to consent. We shall hear vile stories told as funny, not merely licentious stories, but stories which the teller could not be telling unless he was betraying someone's confidence. We shall hear infamous detraction of the absent, 
often disguised as pity or humor. Things we hold sacred will be mocked. It is easy for us to make up in our minds and think that we would never stoop as low as the, uh, the proverbial Twitter atheist. We would never deny our master as literally and profusely as the Apostle Peter did. But how many times were you in the presence of those who hate God and feel that with your presence alone, you are complicit in their mocking of all things that pertain to godliness? How many times did you feel the stifling pressure of conforming to non-believers' mocking of Jesus and Christianity? How many times did you want to object to the falsehood that they are self-propagating, but ultimately you were unable to utter a sound? This is the feeling behind these opening words. That it is hard to be a worshiper of Yahweh, a worshiper of the one true God, a Christian, to be a Christian in this world. But the blessed, happy man is the one who chooses not to just, not just associate with them or abstain from the wicked when it's necessary, but to stand firm and stand for gospel truth in gospel love. And this leads into verse 2, because the blessed man does not pitch his tent with the wicked, but his delight, what he desires, what his soul yearns for, is the law of the Lord. Day and night, it says, his thoughts are centered upon God's thoughts. Uh, the theme of not conniving with the wicked in verse 1 is now juxtaposed, held together to this theme of the richness, the deliciousness of God's law. Psalm 19, Psalm 34, Psalm 119 are but a few of the psalms in the psalm books, chock full of songs extolling the preciousness, the worthiness of praise that is God's law. God's law is, by nature, a reflection of God's character. His rules and his requirements are like guardrails for the blessed man. They help him stay on the path that reflects what it is like being a blessed man. He is blessed by God because he wants to be like God. Therefore, his delight, his meditation, his thoughts are centered upon the law of God. And so this is the, the duality that you first must hold when you enter the Psalter. Uh, you must have a healthy view of sin as well as a God-centered view of desire and delight, ultimately rooted in his word. When you view sin for what it is, uh, something not to be trifled with, uh, you understand that Sin does not produce ultimate delight, but rather on the flip side, true delight comes from God alone as revealed through his law. And when that duality, when you have that mindset set right, 
the Psalms open up to you. I can imagine this can be what you call an example of having the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So blessedness, blessing comes from walking in this reality. Hating and rejecting sin in all of its forms as well as treasuring and delighting God in his law. And this is the reality believers walk in day in and day out. And so the picture now of the psalmist that that he wants to portray uh, is logically painted. He is like a tree. He is sturdy. He is nourished by streams of water of God's word. And in time, in the right season... In God's timing, he produces, what does it say? He yields its fruit. He produces the fruit or he produces the results of what it means to be a true worshiper of Yahweh. He produces blessedness, happiness that in turn blesses others. Fruit, by nature, does no good to the tree that produces it. It can't. A tree can't taste and enjoy its own fruit. But rather, fruit attracts others to share in the tree's abundance. And that's the image that the psalmist paints of this blessed life. The psalmist completes this picture by by adding the element of longevity. The blessed man's leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. And this prosperity is based upon a life devoted to or delighted in the law of God. You can see that connection from verse 2 to verse 3. This is not some worship God and he will prosper your sinful cravings for material wealth. But rather, it is worship God and you will see God's hand distinctly and clearly shaping and sustaining your life. God is the one who plants this tree. He helps you dig down deep roots. He will nourish you with streams of fresh living water, as our Lord Jesus liked to call it. And you in turn, when you delight yourself in God and his word, you will look back and see that God has been prospering you regardless of what kind of inclement weather you may be bombarded by in the, in the storms of your life. Psalmist moves on to his next picture. The wicked are not so. This is our second evaluation. The evaluation of the wicked. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. I think it is fitting for the psalmist's words concerning the wicked to be few or terse. There's not much to be said about them. Rather, the picture the psalmist paints is effective in itself. Uh, It's equally as poignant. They are like chaff. 
They are tumbleweed. They are the coarse residual elements left over after a harvest that is eventually blown away. And this is another theme we'll find in the Psalms in Old Testament poetry. We will find ultimate vindication. Verse 5 mirrors verse 1. It is the wicked who ultimately will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Um, the wicked who mocked the righteous for not standing with them will find the roles reversed or according to one, how the turn tables. Because what matters at the end will never be the wicked's judgment of the righteous or in the short term, the righteous's judgment of the wicked for that matter. But ultimately what matters at the end is that the wicked will not stand because of God's evaluation of them. And that leads us to our last evaluation. God's eva final evaluation of both in verse 6. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. He recognizes. He affirms the righteous. It is for this reason why the righteous are those who are truly blessed and they're truly happy. Uh, there is a greater goal in view here, God's ultimate approval. Contrary, by implication, the way of the wicked, God does not know. And what he does not know, he does not recognize. There is no life behind a way that God does not know. And so ultimately, the wicked shall perish. This psalm, this first psalm, is a roadmap for the next 149 psalms uh, because it orients the reader on how the reader must be when he approaches God. Those who walk in righteousness before God are those who are truly blessed and they're truly happy. To transition and to conclude, it is almost cliche now uh, for preachers or students of God's word to look at Psalm 1 and conclude, ah, of course, the person, Jesus Christ, is this truly blessed, happy man before God. He fits all of these descriptions. And I think in that temptation to be cliche, um, there is a temptation to discount how true and how right it is for Jesus to fit perfectly as blessed the man, Asher Chaish. And so, this sermon cannot end without focusing upon this connection this psalm has with Christ. Jesus is the true blessed man of God. Never once did he walk in the counsel of the wicked. He rejected the Pharisees and their teaching and their vain pursuit of self-glory. He ministered to sinners. 
he dined with them, but never once did he condone them for their sins and always told them after he ministered to them to go and sin no more. He did not scoff or mock at those who exhibited features of true, humble religion, true godliness, but he praised them for their faith. And during his trial, he was scoffed at and he was mocked at. And yet in his silence, he entrusted himself to God and God alone. His delight was in God's law. Communion with his father was his first priority. Prayer and meditation are what fueled his ministry. Late night and early mornings would either be spent ministering and teaching God's law or in private and personal devotion to it in the Judean wilderness or any other calm and quiet place he may find. He is the image of the tree, not just because he hung from the tree, but rather as a result of his death and his resurrection, the fruit that he, that he bore went forth as good news, as the gospel, which in turn blessed all nations and resulted in the salvation of sinners like you and me. And, and he is the one who rules now. And he is the one who is coming to rule and to judge. And all that he did, his father gave resounding approval, so much so that even some attested to, they attested, they audibly heard the voice of Yahweh saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is the Jesus we place our hope and our trust in. This is the Jesus who first lived the true and blessed, happy life in which we too may derive blessedness and happiness from. A life that reflects the blessing found in Psalm 1 is a life that is saturated in the knowledge that Jesus had made this life. Jesus has made knowing God and loving his word possible in the first place. And so we must, we must place and we must give Jesus the praise that he rightfully is due. And that is the picture that we walk away with from Psalm 1. Let us pray. Father, we receive all blessing from the heavenlies because we have Christ. And so now, as we looked into your word, may the image of Christ the radiance of your glory be ever more clear and ever more precious in our sights. Strengthen our faith so that we may love you better and treasure your word more. And that is our prayer tonight. Pray all these things in your son's matchless, awesome, incredible name. Amen.